Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, Overwhelmed Dad's edition. It is the <laughs> they had a, kids had a two hour delay today to start school, and they had a Oof. snow day yesterday. So instead of learning, they're playing Fortnite. What am I going to do? You know, what are you going to do? Yep. I got podcast to me. <laughs> Ryan, I actually brought three links today mm-hmm. that I thought were super interesting. Like they weren't just yeah. little sort of small tidbits. They were big things. I'll start with my personal favorite, and then maybe I'll let you choose the next one. Vicky Boykis wrote for us back in the day. Yep. She's a great writer. She's got her own sort of like blog and newsletter. And she wrote a piece, What's New with Machine Learning in Production? So this is a topic that's near and dear to our hearts. We were just, you know, sort of working on a big thing about how would you get Gen AI into your organization? You know, basically, right, like put some kind of machine learning into production. She makes a good point, which is that all we're talking about these days is Gen AI. That is probably 10% of what's going on out there in terms of machine learning, right? Like machine learning is doing a million things. It's recommending the next thing I see on YouTube. It's configuring how my application appears when I log in. It, you know, machine learning is doing a million things. We're sort of focused on one because a lot of the other stuff has kind of faded into the background for us. You know, we don't see it. Somebody mentioned that, you know, the thing that blurs your screen behind you on a video or takes out mm-hmm. other people's voices and echoes, you know, it's all machine learning. It's all you know, the sort of AI smarts that are good at that stuff. But the thing I kind of wanted to get to in her piece that to me is, it's like one of the most interesting things to think about almost at like a philosophical level about machine learning. Machine learning, she says, is compression. You take some kind of data, you compress it, and in compressing it and getting a representation, you, well, first of all, you could just make it smaller. I mean, that's, you know, Mm -hmm. like a zip file is compression. But that's not machine learning, is it? Mm. What she's saying is like in compression, you get this amazing ability to sort of like encode knowledge. And one of my favorite sort of like little talks ever from Ilya Sutskever, the former chief scientist at OpenAI with the head of NVIDIA was, he said the sort of same thing. He's like, it turns out when you do all this work to compress data, what you're doing is teaching the software system a world state. and mm-hmm rules it needs to figure out how to predict, you know, how to respond to a query. Uh, I'll just stop there because I'm kind of rambling, but like this idea is super interesting and I guess kind of at the heart of what's going on in machine learning. Well, I I think the comparison comparison is is interesting because GZIP basically works by finding patterns in a piece of text, right? If you say the word uh, hello a dozen times, it'll encode that as a symbol, as 31 or something. Right. So it figures out what's the sort of statistically most beneficial way to compress this, like to make it smaller. Right. And right. machine learning in a lot of ways does that, right? It figures out how to encode all this text as like, you know, parameters, weights, biases. I think it's not entirely the same because it's not a deterministic retrieval. The decoding process isn't like, you can just go through a decoding function and get all of world's knowledge from a machine learning right. model. Yeah, you uh, can't unzip. <laughs> right. You can't unzip right. a uh, giant AI model, although people are working on that. You know, that's a field, uh, AI interpretability, and to be able to say, like, what was this trained on? And can we pull out, you know, copyrighted data? And, you know, one of those sort of like holy grails would be, can we mm. get it to unlearn something, right? Like, let's say in the future, we want to fine tune it. And, you know, we decide that it has data that's now private or data that's now inaccurate. 
Like, how would you remove that, you know, from the model's training without having to train it all over again? That's not something we understand how to do now, but yeah, very mm-hmm. interesting idea of like, how could you undo it? And then, yeah, just to your point, one of the really cool things that Vicky brought up was this paper, which I guess came out, made a stir, and then got lost, you know, because things are just moving so fast. And the the point of the paper was GZIP, you know, which is not like uh, a cutting edge, recently developed algorithm, but, you know, like something kind of old and standard can just using, you know, nearest neighbor kind of stuff and compressing data, be a gold standard neural network like BERT, you know, when it comes to certain classification tasks. So like... So to be fair, that's what the paper claimed, but the community found that the offline evaluation metrics that the authors were using were not exactly standard. A bit favorable to their results, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's say maybe it doesn't beat gold standard, but like it, it hangs in there with, you know, a gold standard transformer architecture. And we're talking about, you know, something that was for zip files, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that she brings up as part of this is that, you know, you're getting these big balls of compressed data, but you don't know what's in there, right? Mm-hmm. Most people have lost control of the data that they're getting results from, where they're, right. they're using models that were trained on whatever packages. You know, I don't think right. a lot of folks release their training data sets um, and you're calling it as an API. It's dangerous, they say, to do that, right? Like, right. at I this mean, point, the big model creators will claim that it would be dangerous to release that because then bad actors could take them and this is cutting-edge stuff. I mean, maybe. We'll, we'll I'm just see saying what they that. claim. I'm not, you know, advocating that argument. I'm just saying that's the... You know, in the piece we did with IBM, they tell you exactly what's in there as a way to, you know, let you know that they're not getting super copyrighted stuff. As opposed right, that's to, a great approach to governance. And, yeah. you know, Facebook's Llama has driven a ton of the open source work. You know, for some of the other big players, that's their edge, and they don't want to release that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe safety right. is a valid reason not to do it, but also, you know, obviously it's a competitive business edge in their businesses, so they don't have to do it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's been talk that you can't create a, a world-class LLM without uh, using copyrighted material, so... There's no way. You know, yeah, there's no way. There's no way. <laughs> we'll see if they can do that without yeah riding the backs of other people right uh yeah we'll see or maybe they'll they'll come up with you know data licensing data sharing agreements and we'll you know we'll move on in a sort of amicable way as a partnership we'll see we don't know what's yeah. going to happen all right so moving forward there was a cool piece i sent along mm-hmm. what is the next thing after open source did you get a chance to look at that one i did yeah but give me your thoughts so that so open source right now is primarily a way for businesses and organizations to use tools and, and solutions that other people have open source. And it's great for people who are developers and know what they're doing. Um, right. He wants a post open that credits, you know, has those companies compensate, I think, the open source software as well as making the open source software a little more consumer friendly. You know, mm-hmm. you think about it, do you personally use any open source software? Right. You know, I use GIMP and that's about it. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'd have to mm-hmm. think about that. I mean, yeah, this is not like a new thing that we haven't talked about. You know, how does the common person who's creating an OS, you know, mm-hmm. get compensated? And how do you ensure that stewards of big open source technology don't when it then suits them, decide to make yeah. it closed source, you know, and sort of betray the trust of the community. Those are two things, you know, that I think 
we've discussed many times this article mm-hmm. or you know interviewing Bruce Perens, you know, quoted as a founder of the open source movement. So these are not like I think new issues that you and I have not heard of. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was kind of hoping for some more substantive ideas of what you know he was working on and you know could be sort of like the next step this seemed mostly like pointing out the problems that are sort of well known and i think he said something like i'm putting something together obviously i need help from a lawyer and some grant right (laughs) and i think one of the things he says is that most of the open source things are are licenses and not contracts right they are giving you rights they are not enforceable as much Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. And of course, this conflict comes down to Linux and Unix flavors, right? I'm not going right. to name names, but there are some Unix Linux providers who have stopped giving up the source, which is required right. under the GPL. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. I wonder how many people who are younger than us are more conversant in like their ownership usage or, mm-hmm. you know, sort of modification and customization of software and, you know, mm-hmm care to move towards open source technology because they feel, you know, that will provide them with the ability to do what they want with it and to take it their own way and fork it, you know, if they need to. I mean, I think the reality is that like as these things become larger and larger, right? They need a board and, you know, a sort of corporate backer because they're becoming huge and you have to support right. the community and figure this stuff out. And so then for an individual, you know, you could always fork it and then run it on your own, but for an individual to do that, you'd kind of be stuck on whatever the last version was, right? Yeah. Like maybe you could take it forward yourself a little bit, but an individual or even a group of individuals can't really maintain an extremely popular OS mm. project, you know, going forward. It's not that easy to just say, see you later, we're forking it mm. and we're going our own way. Maybe within your own company you could, but again, then you're working on your own sort of private house version of Linux and that could cause mm. issues in the future, you know, when it becomes incompatible with other things. I mean. I think that's why you see most of these big open source projects eventually fall under the the wings of like the Apache or Cloud Native right. Foundation or the Linux Foundation. Right. But, you know, talking about people's willingness and interest in customizing, you know, the iPhone is the most popular phone, I think. And it is as closed a system right. as, as you can get. Right. Like, I don't think people on a consumer level want to configure as much as, you know, a developer does. Yeah. Yeah, we live in the world of developers and the reality is like most people don't want to run their own Mastodon server. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to configure their own, you know, modular Android phone that, you know, they can do their liking. Most people want to get the latest flavor of the iPhone every two years and right. just have it work the way, you know, the way it works yeah. and such as life. Just have it work. Yeah. Don't make me do work about it. All right. So speaking of open source, we have discussed on the podcast a few times mm-hmm. Godot, uh, which is an open source gaming engine. And mm-hmm. uh, they made some news this week. They have a free port of the Godot engine, which will allow you to build Nintendo Switch games. This is so cool. So before it was for creating essentially like PC and mobile games. Now it's something that you can use to build games for one of the most popular sort of dedicated video game consoles. So I thought this was mm-hmm. super cool. Yeah, I think that's that's really cool. And I'm not sure if they have ports for the other consoles, but the fact that it's on the Switch, the Switch, again, has been another one that's been very protective of its platform. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact that you can now port your games to it, um, I'm sure you still have to license some amount, but maybe you don't. You know, maybe mm-hmm. the Nintendo Switch is jumping on the the indie game train you know right 
indie games are are hugely popular you know yeah yeah i think that's probably true right like let's say you're a nintendo or you know let's just say you're you're a company and you have like huge competitors and you know they have their own studios where they produce triple a games and you know you do that sometimes too what's good for your ecosystem well you know every year having a couple of indie games that become a hit and make press and are available on your platform and are a reason to pick up your hardware right Mm -hmm. so godot does have other console support Uh, most Mm -hmm. of it is through third parties what does that mean that means they don't officially support it because you have to be a licensed company for most of that i see right i got you i think they they do for the xbox i assume because there's a you know a window synergy there gotcha and so SDKs are, are protected by non-disclosure agreements. So mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. After this, I looked up just a little thing just to see what people like about it. And, you know, the first mm-hmm. thing is what we just talked about. Godot is good for programmers. Like open source is good for programmers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, that's one reason to like it. it. It doesn't mean much to the average, you know, person or to somebody who's like, well, what I want to do is make money, you know, off of my game. And so it has to be good for the consumer. Godot has its own language, which I didn't know. It's kind of like a... It's called GD Script, and, and it takes off a bit on Python and Lua. If you know those, you, you'll probably be in good shape. And then it supports mm-hmm. multiple languages, C++ um, and other things like that. Visual Script, which is like an alternative to Unity, mm-hmm. and something called language binding. So like you could go in there and I guess use you know, your chosen language through an API. So I, I, those are some things I didn't know about Godot that I learned this time. Yeah. But it, it seems like the uh, Nintendo Switch one doesn't support the the C sharp or native extensions, which right. You know, if you know GD script, you're set. Right. Otherwise, yep. hit the docs, kids. <laughs> and it has its own IDE. You're going into your own little world. But I think that's true of gaming. Like if your tr- yeah. other choice is Unity, you're going into your own little world of Unity. You know, which has mm-hmm. its own sort of universe. So it's not quite as interoperable as picking up a language like Python and you know something like that. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when we talked to the creator, you know, mm-hmm. created because he wanted his own way to make games. Turned out right. it was useful for other people. Right. Yeah. And I think those yeah. those are the best uh open source projects, right? Like you're right. you're solving your own problems. Scratching your own itch, and then a community yeah. gathers around you. And that's a good thing. Right. I mean the the downside of that is that uh they're not always the most uh user friendly. They're not always most Yeah, they're sending you angry emails at midnight saying, Why haven't you right. fixed this bug I pointed out last right. week? Because it, it's from me, it's not for you. Right. It's like, well, I have three kids, so go fix it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, let's go to that type of the show. Let's shout out a member of our community who's contributing to an open source project. Ryan, you and I hey. obviously work on an open source project called Stack Overflow. Is it? People can take the knowledge. Um, it's open source in like the very light sense that we uh, give away it's the creative, data. Creative Commons. Yeah, Creative Commons. We give away the data. You could use that to build a research app or something like that. I don't want anybody mad at us for, for claiming it's open source. Okay. It's not open source <laughs> software. Uh, we like to distribute the knowledge. That's true. All right, this sounds like a magic card or something. Uh, awarded mm-hmm. January 19th to Arelar, how to call a destructor. If you want to know how oh, yeah. to call a destructor, Arelar has the answer for you. This is a .NET question. Manually destroy mm-hmm. C objects. Just destroy them. Must, must destroy. Must destroy. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. As always, I am Ben Popper. Find me on X at Ben Popper. If you have questions or suggestions for the show, if you want to come on, hit us up, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. 
I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter and or X at Arthur Donovan. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.